The medic is always there in my mind. He's always holding the bleeding head of the wounded infantryman in his lap. I'm always circling right above them in my gunship. The medic is always screaming in our headsets to land and evacuate the wounded soldier. It's just a wound, but I can't stop the bleeding, screams the medic. The head is the most vascular part of the human anatomy. Even minor head wounds can be tough because of that. He's going to die if we don't get him out of here, screams the medic. But the LZ is too hot to get the dust off in without it getting shot down and yielding four more casualties. And our gunship is too heavy to get in and out of such a tight spot. And besides, the living grunts below us still need our firepower. You can say words like the calculus of war, but those words don't scream and they don't bleed and they don't smell of copper and urine and feces. And we can't control the LZ and the firing is steady. Never mind, says the medic in a voice, voice broken with crying. He's dead. The young soldier had bled out in the medic arms. I can see the medic sobbing over the body. In my mind, they're always there, always begging to be saved. Both of those soldiers had names, but I never knew them. At least one of them has been a name on the Vietnam Memorial Wall for a long time. They are among the nameless ghosts in my mind. The lost army that didn't come home with me, but I have not abandoned them. I never will. Ladies and gentlemen, it is both our distinct honor and privilege to welcome our next next guest to the podcast. He is a Vietnam veteran and a lifetime journalist. Mr. Larry Shook, welcome to the show. <laughs> Thank you, gentlemen. Welcome, Mr. Larry. Thank you, sir. Yeah. Uh, Mr. Larry, I'm going to start it off for the first, uh, first part of the show is kind of something we do to introduce you and it's all on you <laughs> where'd you grow up uh, what kind of hobbies did you have growing up and just go ahead and give us the rundown on on your early life pre-military if you don't mind <laughs> well i grew up in san diego california <clears throat> i um followed the religion of baseball <laughs> my uh, <laughs> my career path was to replace Mickey Mantle in center field for the Yankees. <laughs> okay. That, okay. That was uh, interrupted because I tried to play football and uh, I had the heart for it, but not the body. They made a middle linebacker out of me and I got my ass kicked <laughs> badly <laughs> and uh, dislocated my shoulder. My, one of my calling cards was my throwing arm. I had a, I had a gun. Okay. And uh, nice. um, that, that ended my, my, my dreams. Mm-hmm. And so then my plan, you know, my plan was go to school, become a writer. Probably I did journalism in high school. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Vietnam started and uh my i completed my first two years of college at san diego city college okay okay and i just i I thought a buddy of mine had been killed in vietnam and i was you know the war was just really eating my guts and i was i was really scared i didn't want to go to war and um i thought a buddy of mine had been killed 
And I just said, okay, I just can't do this. I, so I went down and I volunteered for the draft. And, uh, and that, that was it. That was it. And as it, <laughs> as it turned out, it was, it, it was another friend of mine. It wasn't my good buddy. It was his cousin mm-hmm. that, was, that was killed. But anyway, that's what led me to wow. Vietnam. So, wow. so from there, um, it seems, you know, pretty, uh, pretty normal upbringing that you had. Mm-hmm. Um, let's talk about enlistment and, uh, and your, your desire to, um, do what you did, um, and, uh, the craving for the infantry, we'll just say, uh, <laughs> to, to get there and, and not let anything, uh, not let anything stop you. Uh, so we're going to jump back into, you know, enlistment and, and, uh, what led you up to actually deploying uh, Mm -hmm. to Vietnam? So I I just couldn't live with myself. You know, I was secure in a two S deferment, a student deferment. They, Mm -hmm. they would never have gotten me. Um, Mm. Oh, wow. So, oh, so this is okay. Yeah. So could you explain that, Mr. Larry, um, as far as draft deferments for some of the listeners, because we, you know, obviously we, we volunteered, we had, we had our draft cards when we turned 18, um, but that was a totally different ball game back then. So could you, could you explain to the listeners on on what that is? And I'm not super knowledgeable about it, but there were a variety of deferments. There were obviously physical deferments, but if you were Mm -hmm. a a full-time student, you got a a student deferment. It was a two S deferment. Okay. And, and, you know, guys, guys that did not want to be drafted, um, <laughs> n- nurtured those deferments. I, I mean, they just took care of them. With All their... of a sudden loved college. Yeah. Yeah. And, <laughs> okay. Okay. And um, right. anyway, but I just couldn't live with myself. And uh, so I, I did it and I had a, I had a, a Shakespeare professor at, in, in city college, really good guy who really loved me. He was a, he was a really good guy. And I, and I actually had a job, a wonderful job that San Diego city schools did for college students um, as a part-time custodian. I had to work my way oh, through wow. school. So, you know, it was a 20 hour a week job as a custodian and all the full-time custodians were ex swabbies. They were all Navy guys. <laughs> and my, um, the lead custodian also was like a surrogate father for me. These guys all love me. And I said, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to do this. And they were just appalled. And Dr. Bardicke, my Shakespeare prof, just really read me out. And I mean, he, and he was a very strong critic of the war. And um, I grew up in a very, you know, white bread, blue collar family. My dad had been a Marine in the Pacific and he was not a chest thumper at all or a flag waver at all. Hmm. Um, but he was a Marine. <laughs> he was a, a, a super <laughs> fine Marine. And I just kind of absorbed that. Get some. <laughs> and um, and um, so anyway, these guys and and. and you know, the guys, the older guys that I worked with um, as a custodian, oh, man, they just lectured me. They, they just lectured me. They said, you you are going to be cannon fodder. You don't know what you're doing, yada, yada. But there was nothing that could have kept me from doing it. I had to do it because I couldn't live with myself otherwise. Right. So I volunteered mm-hmm. for the draft. You, could, you went down to the rec- recruiting office, and I volunteered for the draft, and I, and I had learned that you could get a two or no a three month early out 
to go back to college, to go back to school. So I timed my, um, my volunteering for the draft so that I could get a three month early out to go back to, nice. to, to school. Wow. And, um, you know, I had a real sit down with a recruiting sergeant and said, this is the deal. I am, I am, I am volunteering for the infantry. I'm, 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 I want to go fight. I, I do not want to go into the army and be a clerk typist or a cook or anything like that. And, right. and he just looked at me like I was crazy. And you know, <laughs> said, well, You're going anyways, buddy. <laughs> you, you don't have anything to worry about. You're going to Vietnam and, and you, you will, you will be in the infantry. Anyway, after basic, I don't, I, I must, I must had a, have had something written on my forehead that said, you know, I'm a gung-ho idiot. Be- Welcome to the club. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. In basic training, you know, our DI was a mean, tough little son of a bitch. Sergeant Irizando, Irizado, no, Alessandrino, Sergeant Alessandrino Irizardi. He was a, wow. he was a Basque. And um, he came up to me, and I was afraid he was going to kill me. And he said, you're going to be my platoon sergeant. And, you know, so they, they made me the acting sergeant and in basic. And I hit, you know, I hit it really hard. I took it seriously and I hit it hard. And, and uh, but then I was shocked after basic to get orders for MP school. I was insulted. And um, <laughs> I went to my company commander, uh, captain, and told him the deal. And he said, you know, Shook, just go to Vietnam. You're going you're gonna to go to Vietnam. Don't worry about it get over there, put in a transfer for the MPs, you know, so that's, that's what I did. And the, 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 I was assigned to the 552nd MP company at Long Bin, which was USRV headquarters, Vietnam, U S army headquarters, Vietnam. And it was, a, okay. it was about as close to a stateside assignment as you could have <laughs> in Vietnam it was like, which is not what you want. No, my gosh. And so it was like, you know, it was like being assigned to the parking lot at Walmart or something. <laughs> I, 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 wow. I immediately went into the first sergeant um, and said, I want to apply for a transfer. And he said, get out of here. And so that began a battle with him. And I, I really had to, to, to fight to, uh, to get that, that, that transfer. Meanwhile, um, you know, my officers, everybody tried to talk me out of it. You know, they just said, you're crazier than a bed bug. And uh, I, had a, I had a platoon leader, Lieutenant Ed Miller, who, also, you know, really liked me. And he just said, you're nuts, man. And he took me out. We, we took a gun jeep out one night, an MP gun jeep. And we ran the alleys of Benoit, which is, you know, kind of hairy because they're VC there. And I right. he was driving and I was... Upon the, uh, you know, on the machine gun it was a mounted M60, and uh, he, you know, he, I guess he thought it would make make me change my mind, but it's like, cool, this is it. This is what I this, this, this is what I came here for. Anyway, that went on and on, and, and uh, finally, I had a real showdown with the uh, the the first sergeant, and uh, he transferred me to get me out of his hair. He transferred me to the first division, um, their big base camp at Zeon. And so I pulled a month of combat MP duty. 
the the uh, and it was that was real combat MP duty. I mean, it was hairy stuff. And then yeah. and then my transfer finally came through to aviation. That's how I wound up in aviation. Wow! Oh, wow! So so from some of that was it was the infantry. Um, how did you go from MP to, to aviation? And, and was that, was that a transition that you didn't want initially? I didn't care. I just, I just wanted to get into combat. I just said, just give me the first position that'll get me into combat. Okay. So it it was going to be infantry or, uh, you know, maybe armor or, or, or aviation. And it was bannered about a lot. I have no idea if this is true, but it was bannered about a lot that the shortest life expect combat life expectancy in Vietnam was door gunners. And that first sergeant said, <laughs> <laughs> I'm going oh, to really? you what you're asking for, buddy. Whoa. So that was okay. All right. So I'm okay. I'm, yeah. I'm picking I up kind of read. <laughs> I can read between the lines of what that first sergeant was saying. It's like, okay, you want some, well, here's, get what, some. here's what led so. up to that. So I kept putting in, I kept okay. putting in all these transfers. They just kept coming back, and by this time, I developed a good okay. buddy, who was an E five clerk, and um, um, Tom Gray, and he was a okay. he was a black guy, and he had grown up in Paris. His dad worked in construction in Paris, and and Gray was the most worldly human being I've ever met in my life. I mean, he was just a cool, cool character. And he was very, very, very sharp. And he said, you know, there's a user V regulation that all requests for a transfer from non-combat to combat um, assignments have to come, have to go all the way to user V. They have to come back from user V. And your, your, your uh, transfers aren't going through. I think they were called a 1049. And, and I mm-hmm. said, well, what do I do about it? And he said, well, threaten the first sergeant with a, uh, he said, do you do you know any um any any congressman? And I said, I said, yeah. Well, I'm, we're just diving right into this, I aren't said, we? I said I had an aunt who was the president of the San Diego Cattle Women's Association, and she was a real active okay uh, Republican, and she, and she was a good buddy of my congressman, and so and I I think I'd met him, and and so anyway, Gray said uh, threaten him with a congressional investigation. Lifers hate that. And so I, right. you know, I'm, I'm a writer. I wish I would have known you while I was in. <laughs> I was so I typed up this transfer, you know, addressed it to Congressman Bob. What the hell was his name? And I went to the, I went to the first shirt's desk and I handed it to him. And he read that. And he looked up at me. And I never saw that kind of hatred in my life. And, and he just said, you're gone. Door and gunner. In no time, I was with the first division, and then and then my transfer to uh, um, aviation came a month after that. So it took me. Yeah. Go ahead. So no, no. So my question is: is as you had you ever been in a helicopter before you've been transferred over? Yes. To aviation? So one of our assi- one of our okay. assignments was to run convoys up what was called Thunder Road uh, Highway One Three between um, uh, Zeon and Lyke. Lyke was a major uh, heavy artillery uh, fire base. They had 175s there. And, and oh, wow. uh, you know, that, that was pretty hairy duty. We got, we got, we got, you know, we got ambushed a lot. 
on that. So you had been in combat, uh, aviation combat. No, no. So one day, you know, we, we get up there with, uh, with our convoy and we're getting them dispersed into the, into, into like, Hey, and there was a, uh, 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 observation helicopter one of those little bubbles uh, i think it was a uh 13 and i just went up to the pilot you know and we're just kids and i said hey could you give me a ride and i've you know i've, I've got <laughs> I'm, I'm wearing my mp band and my mp helmet he said yeah get in and so we so we go up and screw around on that helicopter and um you know, I I was hooked. It's like, oh my gosh, this is just the coolest thing in the world. So, so. <laughs> yeah. And you were and you were eighteen. I was, I was actually uh, no, I was actually twenty. I was twenty. Okay. Okay. Was, okay. So still, st- still not an old enough to know what's I, good I, for I still, you. And, and what I still did not have a brain that was capable of of, a, right? of adult discernment. <laughs> <laughs> well and even and even back then the you know the vertical envelopment doctrine really hadn't is not even close to where it is today so the technology back then is a lot more raw i would i would assume to say so what you said that you fell in love with it can you just kind of maybe elaborate on that little first ride on where you found that love you know it was just it was just absolutely amazing i mean at that point i had only been in an airplane a couple of times in my life you know, when I, when I flew okay. to training and, and so forth, but to, to be in the air like that and, you know, those bubbles, it's just, it's just all glass around you. And I mean, it was right. amazing. And the pilot was a hotshot kid like me. And, you know, he was just uh-huh. zipping the thing all over the air. And I, it was just, <laughs> it was just a huge, huge adrenaline high. I mean, it was just, yeah. Uh-huh. Oh my God. Yeah. It was, it was really cool. So, so from there, uh, life, uh, you know, you got transferred to the aviation side and, uh, life as a crew chief began for you. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, first I was a gunner and I was a gunner in the slicks and the slicks were the troop transporting helicopters. And they're the Mm-hmm. ones that uh flew the grunts into the lz's and picked them up in the in the pz's and i and i did that for a month and then they somebody saw the idiot sign on my forehead and said you've been, you've been invited <laughs> to join the guns and which was elite i mean it was a big deal it was really it was really elite and um mm-hmm. you know i yeah. never fired i don't think i'd ever fired an m60 free gun at that time, the, our our guns, our oh, guns wow. in the uh, in the slicks were you know were mounted with butterfly triggers on them, and mm-hmm, uh, right. to check you out, they you know we think you got it what it takes, so we're going to invite you. And then they they would take us out for a check ride, and there was an old uh, 173 Airborne um, base camp there, and mm-hmm. there was still stuff there including, you know, like barrels and that kind of stuff. And we go, they take you over there and shoot at them and see if you could hit something from, you know, from the, the helicopter. <laughs> and I had good hand-eye coordination. And, they, you know, they'd dump the aircraft around the sky a little bit and see if you're going to throw up. And, and, right. and I didn't. And so then I was, I was promoted into the gunships and I and began flying in the guns as a, as a door gunner. And in my, on my first mission, day one, I started throwing up. 
<laughs> oh, Jesus. An, an actual, you know, combat, an actual contact when you're, you know, they're mm-hmm. just whipping that machine all over the sky and you're hanging out trying to right. you know, pay attention to what you're shooting at. And um, I, I just started barfing and I, I threw up for two weeks solid. And oh, I mean, I was just dying. <laughs> My dad had a, a really weak stomach too. He told me that on this troop ship over, he was actually praying that they would get torpedoed. And, and so, <laughs> your, wait, was, so, your dad in the Pacific as a Marine was, was, was praying to be torpedoed. Because of throw up. was so miserable. It's like, why be alive? He, he was. He said he was. He was literally <laughs> praying that they would be sunk. And I remembered all that when I started, oh, man. you know, flying. And it's like, my gosh, I don't know if I can overcome this. And any, yeah, go ahead. So, yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I was, uh, I was interrupting. Continue. So that went on for two weeks, and then I was really, really, really humiliated. Um, you know, because I couldn't start barfing, and um. We had a mission one day up on the Cambodian border, uh, right on the Ho Chi Minh Trail, and it was in real heavy triple canopy cover, and the grunts stepped into it, and they were just, they, they got ambushed, and they were really getting hammered, and they, they really needed our fire. We couldn't see them. They were just down there in the trees, and so they popped smoke and gave us a firing vector from the smoke. And, uh, you know, we had to put our fire in, which worked a lot of times. We had to put our fire in from there. Usually when, um, when I threw up and I was firing, I'd take my hand off, the, my finger off the trigger and turn my head away from the wind so the wind would blow the barf away. This was so intense, I couldn't do that. I had to, I mean, I had to keep the fire where those guys wanted it. And I had to look where I was shooting. And uh, right. so I vomited, and the wind blew my vomit right back into my face and up into the foam liner around my helmet. <laughs> and, I, you know, the first time we flew over that target, and the, and, the, and the grunts were just yelling at it, right there, right there, pour it in, pour it in, that's it. And, you know, during the radio transmissions, you'd hear all the – Automatic weapons fire on the ground and everything. I mean, they were really in it. And when we broke over right. the target the first time, I could look down through the trees and I saw water. There was clear water. The second time around, the, the oh, wow. water wasn't clear anymore. It was starting to run red. And the third or fourth time around, we came around, um, that water was just pure red. And anyway, when wow. we landed that night... I was absolutely whipped. I, I mean, I was just as whipped as I had ever been in my life. And I went to my crew chief, Jamie Poston, and said, you know, I think I got to quit. I don't think I can do this. And he said to me, um, don't quit. You'll get over the air sickness, but if you quit, you'll never get over that. And that flipped a switch in my head. And I just thought, yep, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to yeah. die of vomiting then. That's what's going to happen. And... Went up the next day, wasn't airsick, and never got airsick again a day for a single day for the rest of my tour. So, Mr. Larry, in regards to your time in Vietnam as a as a crew chief in the 
the gun section, right? In the door gunner section, you emphasize a lot about disregarding your own health, your own physical being, your own mental mental being about the throw up and it's it it sounds funny, but we're we're wondering where you got that because we talk a lot about mental toughness. We talk a lot about work ethic and and continuing through the fray, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, where did where did you get that? And, and and was that something that you feel now, you know, forty plus years later, that was just part of you as as, a, as an individual? Uh, can you can you expand on that, please, sir? Yeah. So what I would say is, uh, you know, I'm, I'm I'm a baby boomer. I'm part of the post World War II generation, and so I grew up. I was raised by the greatest generation, and I was raised with the story that America saved the world from totalitarianism, and you know we liberated Europe, you know yada yada. So that was in me. But I'm not a tough guy. I'm not I'm not somebody like who enjoys fighting and so forth. I'm really competitive ridiculously competitive in sports but fighting per se just always seems stupid to me um so i i you know i don't have that in me but i (laughs) but i had this intense sense of duty to the country and i had this intense sense of how important america is to the world and so when vietnam happened even though there was you know, I was about as politically stupid as somebody could be. The country's at war and young men belong in war. It's that simple. But I was scared shitless. I didn't want to go to war. Um, so anyway, um, and, and then even though when I volunteered for the draft, it was in the middle of the protest really starting to begin, that didn't mean anything to me. It's like, no, you know, you know, you all feel however you want to feel, but I, I feel like this is what I need to do. Um, but it's not that I wasn't scared. I was. Um, but I need to back up and, and, and tell you that I, I left out an important part. So day one in the slicks, my first day in the slicks, as soon as we landed and picked up the grunts and I saw these guys get onto the aircraft, I just thought, oh, my God, what have I gotten myself into? You know, these 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 guys had that thousand yard stare, but they had there was this expression on their faces that I'd never seen before. And on top of that, they were filthy. And I mean, it's like it was you could see it's like, okay, I see what we're getting into. Then we dropped into the LZ and it was a hot LZ and the tracer fire starts coming up and if you've never received tracer fire in the air and I did, you know, we didn't have any training like stateside training or anything like that. Your, your brain cannot process the optics of that. So Hmm. every one of those tracers looks like it's going to hit you right between the eyes. Right. And it's like, it was this, this shock. It was like sticking your finger in an electrical socket. It's like, fuck, I'm dead. I'm dead. I'm dead. I'm dead. I'm dead. And, you know, the tracers are going by. And after that first insertion, it, it was like, God in heaven, what have I done? What have I gotten myself into? That night, um, I was terrified. I thought, okay, this, you just had your last day on earth. You're going to die tomorrow. And it, was, right. and it was that way for two weeks. 
I, I, I didn't sleep for two weeks all night. I couldn't sleep all night long. I was like, you're going to die tomorrow. All day long. I was, I was terrified. I was going to, I was going to die. And at the end of two weeks, it was, it was like when a bully pushes you too far. It's like, okay, motherfucker. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't care. I'm about to, I'm about to fuck you well, up. I don't, I, you know, I'd rather be dead than be bullied by you. I don't care how big right. you yeah. are. I, that, yeah. I'm good with that. I'd rather be dead. I'm going to end this. And so I had yeah. this imaginary fight with myself. And in that fight, I killed myself. And I can still feel that fight to this day. I knocked myself to the ground. I jumped on my chest and I strangled the life out of myself. I saw, I saw the life leak out of my uh, eyes. It was very, very vivid. It's like, you are dead, motherfucker. You, this is my life and you're not going to ruin it with your fear. You are dead. That was the end of it. The next, That's heavy. The next, the next day, yeah. uh, you know, my world changed. Now, all of a sudden, I love the flying again. I was good with the mission. Um, you know, Vietnam is beautiful. The countryside was beautiful. I mean, I was, able to enjoy, I was able to savor everything. It didn't make the awfulness of the war go away. But I was just a different person in it. Was, was that when the, the air sickness left you? And, no, because that, no, that was in the slicks. See, okay. the, sl- okay. the slicks are, are pretty linear flight. You know, it's kind of, kind mm-hmm. of straight flight. And also, you know, keep in mind, you got a load of grunts there. and Nobody's strapped in. The grunts aren't strapped in. And, the, <laughs> you know, the doors are open. And, right. you know, so you're trying, you're trying to keep that flight as stable as possible. It's completely yeah, I, different than the gunships. The flight in the gunships is like, um, they said a, a, a roller coaster that's gone off the rails because you're twisting that. I mean, first of all, you set up for your gun runs, you put your strikes in, that's, you know, that's really radical, really radical dive. And then a radical break after you're, you know, after you cross the target, but then when you engage, when you're covering the infantry and when you're returning fire, that aircraft is being whipped all over the sky. And now, is this mostly triple canopy, or that was no the Mekong Delta? The Mekong Delta was mostly rice paddies. That 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 okay. was okay. that was open. The triple canopy stuff would start along the the camp. Well, there, there was there was triple <clears throat> canopy in a lot of places, but where it was really intense was along the. Cambodian border. So you you typically had targets in sight, so to speak, a clear clear line of sight um, for everything that was going on. The targets were mostly muzzle flashes. Okay. Um, the, the the statistics are that the VC. I've actually got this in a book. The VC initiated and like ended like seventy three percent or seventy seven percent of the firefights we were in, they weren't going to stand toe to toe with our technology. Right. You know, they were, they were gorillas and they were very, very formidable gorillas. So we got in a fight with them on their terms. And, and, and when, when they shot at us, it was because they expected to kill us. And, uh, and then, and then they would stay engaged as long as they could. And then they just disappeared. That's what drove the infantry crazy. The infantry, you know, right. would just be w- walking through the, the paddies and they just get hit out of nowhere and they go to engage and, you know, then the enemy would be gone and it drove guys mad with, 
you know, right. you've got buddies killed and wounded and so forth. When, as, as, as your time in, in Vietnam started to come to a close, Mr. Larry, um, and you started to, you know, uh, you know, being on deployments ourselves, you start getting to that, you know, one month away, you know, one week away, and then bang, you're no longer in Vietnam. You're now back mm-hmm. at home. Can you, can you talk to us about the feelings and emotions that you had um, stepping off that, that, that bird or that ship, you know, that brought you back home? Can you, can you give us a look inside of what was going through your head at that time, please? Yeah. Um, so, the way it worked in our unit was you got to stand down one week before you derotated. You, 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 okay. you flew up to a week and then the last week you, you pulled CQ duty and stuff like that. You were taken off flying, right. flying status. Um, we were in the middle of a really intense war. In fact, the day before my buddy Hugh Scanlon and I were to derotate it, you know, early in the morning, like five o'clock, and a rocket comes in. We hear this, you know, this rocket mm-hmm. go over here, right over the barracks. And, this, and, and then when there should have been an explosion, there wasn't. There was just, there was no explosion. And so, you know, we were out of bed running. To, when we heard that rocket, we were running toward the company bunker. Then there was no explosion. And we went out to the other end of the, the barracks, <laughs> and the rocket was a dud. It was buried in the, you know, oh, in, the, in the ground right outside the <laughs> barracks. And Hugh and I looked at each other and we said, fuck this shit. And we went over to the, <laughs> to the Air Force Processing Center and we wanted to get we wanted to get out of there early. And we had we were uh-huh. in the in the guns. We were kind of master scroungers. We couldn't we fired our mini <laughs> we, we fired our mini, yeah. mini guns so much that it just burned up the bolts. I don't know if you know what, what the bolt uh-huh. of a minigun looks like, but it's got a little wheel on it and it runs on a track and it just, it just burned them up. And we didn't have enough, we didn't have enough um, replacement bolts. And the very worst thing mm-hmm. that could happen to you was to get a jam in your minigun when you're in the middle of a gun run, because it's real clear right. what has happened. The gun is going, mm-hmm. it stops. It is like, so you were, you were free gunning with the, no, no, gun. no, no. The miniguns were mounted, but the M60s okay, were check. free guns. They hung from a punji cord. And, yeah. So anyway, uh, we were always on our armor. It's like, come on, dude, you got to get us some more bolts. And he said, okay. you know, the Air Force <laughs> has all the bolts in the world because they had those. They, <laughs> <laughs> they had those puff the magic dragon. Check Roger that. <laughs> and so he said, go over to the Air Force supply sergeant. Offer him your boost chits, tra- uh, you know, trade your boost chits for, um, you know, for, for minigun bolts. So that's what we did. It's like, okay, that's the way the world, it was oh, like the man. black market. And, and we didn't use, we uh, talk about mission essential. Yeah. We didn't, you know, we couldn't drink anyway. I, I couldn't have a half a beer at night and not throw up all day next day. So that was nothing to me. And the, you know, the Air Force supply guy was thrilled to have our booze chips. So we, so we were used to this black market and we just thought, Hey, fine, let's just go do the black market thing and get out of here early. And we thought, uh-huh. well, what, what could we trade? What would he want? And Hugh, Hugh and I were the two squarest guys in the U S army. We, we didn't know shit about anything, but we thought, 
hey, so many of these guys use marijuana. Let's 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 go over there and see <laughs> if he'd like a baggie of marijuana. We had no idea where to get one. But you know, we went over, we went over to him. <laughs> we could hardly even pronounce it. You know, we go up, we stand in line, we go up and say, Hey, dude, we want to get out of here early. Would you like some marijuana? And he <laughs> white people he just looked at us and he said get the fuck out of here and so that's oh, what geez. coming home was like so we we okay. came home on what we called freedom birds and they were mm-hmm. commercial airliners commercial airliners took us over right. commercial airliners right. brought us back and we we flew out of Tonsonu in Saigon and what I remember was it's like every everywhere you were in Vietnam, you were a target, and so now and and you know the the mortars landed when those planes were taking off and landing, and so I, I remember what it was like, and there was like dead silence in that plane, and it was like you know these thousand yard stairs everywhere, and I remember, you know, we started to roll, and it's like all right, we can still get hit. And then we started to take off. We lifted off. It's like, all right, we can still take 30 fire. You know, and pretty soon it's like, okay, right. we're out of range of, of, of 30s, but we're still within 50 range. And then when we were out of 50 range, it's like, oh, fuck. Relax. And then <laughs> just kind of this numbness. And then, and then, and then landing. And I was picked up. I landed at the Oakland Army Depot in San Francisco. And one of my best buddies, a fellow gunner, the whole time we were there, I mean, guys talked about the Harleys they were going to get or the, or the uh-huh. sports cars they were going to get. When they got right. home. And my buddy, Roger Zoldan, was a real motorhead. And he just, I mean, he built his Harley in his mind's eye. Over and over and over and over again. And um, anyway, he picked me up, and he he, he had not shaved. He, he'd only been home like a month before me. He had not shaved, hadn't had his hair, you know, had a haircut. He was already starting to look wild. And he put he put me on the back of that chopper, and we go through the we go through <laughs> the gate. And the, you know, I mean, you guys have them, but that was his was a Hell's Angel chopper. Things sounded like a. Like a like an oil right. drum full of bolts, you know what it was. Uh-huh. <laughs> and we go through that gate, and the MP waves us through, and Roger flips him the bird, and he says, "Fuck you, lifer!" And he pops a wheelie, <laughs> this wild wheelie. And the next thing I know, I'm looking at the stars, and I'm going down the street, on the, and I think, "Oh my god, I survived a year in a gunship. I'm going to die like this." Yeah. So that was the beginning yeah. of, my, of my transition home. And then, well, that's coming home. Check that box. Yeah. You know, <laughs> yeah, no shit. That's wild. Uh, so, what was, Mr. Larry, so what was the, what was the next step? What was the next? Did you, did you get out of the military? No, I had, did you stay? No, I had three months to go. Um, and my, spent my okay. last three months at the Presidio in San Francisco, which was Sixth Army headquarters. Um, in one of those beautiful mm-hmm. armed military bases in the world. Um, mm-hmm. I, I don't remember any of this. And I, I mean, I have a lot of traumatic amnesia. We, we could talk about that, but I don't, mm-hmm. I don't remember. I, I just remember like feeling in a daze. 
in an, in an absolute daze. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking that everything I saw on the block or in the world, as we called it, was just breathtakingly beautiful. It's like, oh, my God, this is so beautiful. But I was in a state of shock. They hit, My family had a little coming home party for me. I had, you know, you ask about where the fight is in me. Well, I had a couple of real, real asshole uncles. They were sadists, and they bullied mm-hmm. me. Mm-hmm. And um, it, it, that's what made me intolerant of bullying. Like I can't, I can't be bullied. I'll just, I, I'll just turn into a grenade. <laughs> so, and you know, this, and one of these uncles was an alcoholic, and so here I am. My family's gathering me. He comes up to me and he says, um, "Well, I guess you think you're a real hero now." And I couldn't, e- oh, wow. I couldn't even Whoa. speak, and I just said, "No." And I left the party, went to my room and, and, and closed the door. A few years ago, when my mother was, um, a couple of years before she died, my son and I went to visit her. She was in a elder care home. And, and he said to her, um, Grandma, what was dad like when he got back from Vietnam? Yeah. And tears started coming down eyes. And she said he was sick. And so she talked about that a little bit. And she talked about, you know, picking me up at the airport. And it's like, I, she said, I didn't even recognize you. She said, you had an expression in your face that I'd never seen. And she said, it was like you were gone. And she said, after a week, I, I asked you what was wrong. And she said, you said, mom, I'm just so ashamed. And I was, I was really ashamed of what we did in Vietnam. And I was, I was really ashamed that I was part of it. And so she sent me to see the family doctor and our family doctor was this beautiful seventh day Adventist, gentle soul. He was, you know, like a real Marcus Welby of a guy. And he had cared for me since I was like five or six years old. And mom said, when I got back, she said, what did Dr. Reiner say? And she said, I said, he said, I don't have anything to be ashamed of. I just did what the company, what the country asked me to do. That intensified my shame and my, and my sense of alienation. Mm-hmm. It's like, uh, it's like nobody understands. You have no yeah. fucking clue. And so I, it was a struggle. And, and uh, I tried to, you know, go back to school. I went back, I went to San Diego state. I got a prestigious management training job. Um, at Roar Corporation, an aerospace company. Uh, but I, I was just a lost soul. I was just walking around in the days. And finally, I, I, I just thought, I can't do this. And that, that's when I dropped out. And I moved to Sandpoint, Idaho. I rented a log cabin on the mouth of Fry Creek on Lake Ponderay and uh, lived alone with my German short hair pointer um, and, and wrote. Mm-hmm. And um, I'll tell you this wow. a little. And, and I just thought the whole, I wrote about Vietnam and it was like throwing up, it was like throwing up for two years. And um, mm-hmm. but I'll, I'll tell you the story because it relates to the podcast you had me listen to. Um, what's your buddy's name? Connor, who does the. OK, Connor yeah, Moriarty, you know, his yes. point about you just need to get out in nature and you know, yada, yada. So I'm, I, mm-hmm. I'm sleeping in this little log cabin. And um, I heat with a Franklin stove 
and it's the dead of winter, you know, like late November, early December, something like that. And I slept in a sleeping loft above the, the, the ground floor. And that, 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 that uh, Franklin stove would make it like Mexico in the summer in the sleeping loft. I mean, it was just hotter than hell up there. And so I <laughs> slept with all of the mm-hmm. windows open and buck naked. And I'm awakened one night, but, yeah, I don't know, one, two in the morning, something like that, by this incredible racket. I could not figure out what it was. It was an amazing cacophony. So I went downstairs and uh, put on a pair of shoes or boots or something, went outside in the snow, buck naked, walked out to see what, the, what it was. And there was a bay behind my house. And all over the bay mm-hmm. were like pillows, like white pillows all over the bay. And they were making this incredible racket and then spiraling down. And it was a, almost a full moon night. And there were these broken clouds. So there were clouds studding over the moon and the stars and so forth. And spiraling down out of the sky were snow geese. It was like, it was like angels. And oh, I, was, wow. I was utterly shocked with joy and, and, and beauty. And I had this thought. I, I thought American napalm is still falling in Vietnam. And here I am. And I stayed out there in that cold. Just be, It was like being, you know, having a defibrillator put on your heart or something. It was like being shot back to, yeah. to feeling yeah. again. And I, you know, started to go into hypothermia. And I was shivering so bad. Everything was just you know, blurry all around me. I couldn't make myself leave. I knew I wasn't going to freeze to death. I was just right there at my cabin. And I fi- finally, when I went to go back in the cabin, I was so cold, I could hardly move. And in the morning when I woke up, I could feel something had shifted for me. And that was kind of the beginning of a long coming back experience. But th- that was a, you know, that was a gift of mother nature. Wow. Mm-hmm. That's, that's incredible. Yeah. That, that's, uh, that's something that should be heard worldwide through, through, through veterans care. And because that's, that's something that Brian and I, Brian and I have both experienced mm-hmm. with mm-hmm. nature. The absolute <clears throat> wonder and beauty of, of, of stuff like that, that, that comes out and I can think of, you know, several of my experiences where you're just exactly. in complete right. shock and awe of the, the, the majesty right. of what you're seeing. And, 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 and just like you said, it's like being shocked into this, these emotions that you hadn't felt in a while. And, you know, it just in, in my kind of experience with that, it was, it was this, this shock of, of this beauty and, and feeling these mm-hmm. very positive emotions. But then, it was a it was a it was a stark contrast to these other negative emotions that I had right, flying right, around right. in my head as well, and so it was such a it was such a, a quick like like a one eighty. It was like oh my god, this is the most beautiful thing in the world, and yet like you said, there's still napalm mm-hmm. falling in Vietnam, and and so there's like a mixture of guilt, but then again, it's like well. I had better enjoy this for the guys that can't see it, but then you can kind of feel guilty for, 
for feeling that that nature's beauty at the same time there's that duality mm. yeah. um yep uh, that you're not Michael. you're not still there and you're it's, not it's, still it's so darn complex you know. and i i mean to this day i have not figured mm-hmm. out a way to really unravel it and put it into words but it's mm-hmm. i'll just share this part of it with you too this sounds a little crude but i'm going to share it because this is real so I still thought that mm-hmm. this whole time, I thought, I do not know how I'm going to live my life. I, I don't know what I'm going to do. I, I don't see how I'm going to fit in with this country. And I don't know what I'm going to do. And so that next summer, I was out training my dog in a, in a field. It was a beautiful summer day in North Idaho. And North Idaho has this gorgeous, you know, shocking blue summer sky. And, and, we got done training and I was laying on this hill above a hay meadow and the farmer was down there mowing the hay. So there was the smell of fresh hay in the air. I'm laying there on my belly and I'm watching him in this, you know, beautiful warm sun on my back. I got a brick of a boner. It, <laughs> it, was, it was the only, only yes. erotic boner. Not, not erotic erection that I've ever had, <laughs> and I mean, it, it was a dandy, and and I, oh, and okay. I thought, <laughs> okay, I think I can, I think I can go back. That that, ladies and gentlemen, you heard it first on the Seabag podcast <laughs> from our friend, Mister Larry Shook. <laughs> Shook. <laughs> Wow. Continue, Mr. Well, Larry. I mean, I'll, I, I yes. just want to answer your questions. <laughs> you. I, the, the, you're, you're, you know, the, yeah. the point that you're making about coming home and the, you know, the, the transition, it, it's just such a huge thing. And that's why it is so important for folks with PTSD to understand that you are not the same person and you never can be again, literally, because your brain mm-hmm. has been changed. You're, you are a different person. And if you try to fit right. into the world with that brain, you are at very great risk. Often you are at very great risk. And, you know, this is a part of our PTSD crisis that the country doesn't understand. I would say that humanity doesn't understand. So here are the, here are the statistics. Mm-hmm. The VA's latest report on um, veteran suicides was last September. And they, re- and they reported that the problem is getting worse mm-hmm. and uh, that between 2008 and 2017, 60,000 veterans committed suicide, 60,000 American veterans committed suicide in, in, in that 11-year period of time. Now, think about this for just a minute. 58,400 sub-odd names on the Vietnam Memorial Wall. More veterans had committed suicide in that 11-year period. Then, then we're di- then we're killed in the Vietnam War, mm-hmm. and and the people they sent us to fight in Vietnam were real good at killing us. So the best statistic mm-hmm. that yeah. I have heard comes from Rita Nakashima Brock, a theologian who's a founder of uh, the Soul Repair Center at um, Bright Theological Seminary, Texas Christian University. She says she believes that a minimum of three hundred thousand Vietnam veterans have committed suicide. A minimum of three hundred thousand. Oh, wow. mm-hmm. In the VA's latest, you know, report, they—I mean, it's a—it's a stunning report. They say we don't know what to do about it. 
Um, and we. Mm-hmm. Well, let me ask you this, Mister Larry. Do you think that the time that you left Vietnam and and got out of the military, do you think that that time was was the worst part of of getting out? Like what you were talking about about being in Idaho and seeing the seeing that that amazing sunrise come up and all that stuff is the transition the most important part to learn how to fix yourself not fix yourself but learn how to cope cope thank you for with what you're going through or can can you can you talk to us a little bit about um not just not even not even lessons learned but how how you coped with those emotions and of course there's not a a one two three you do these things and you right. got it made but you've got you, you know what did you did you say 45 well, I, years I was hit, I, well i mean i came then. home in 68 so it's what is that 50 okay. 52 so, years so, or something so, like that so you've got mm-hmm. 52 years of of coping with this this stress that you've gone through when do you deal with it do do you deal with it when you get home and and i know this is a very broad question i don't mean to put you on the spot by any means but how do you deal with it when do you deal with it and and is is there something that we can you know from the listeners that we have the the military guys and gals that we have on the show is there something that you can give to us? So here's what, here's what I would say. To, what is missing, the reason this crisis is so mm-hmm. chronic is because it is not being sincerely addressed. And I mean that very seriously. This is, it's no accident what the VA and Pentagon are doing. Mm-hmm. Watch the, um, the wonderful documentary film called Thank You for Your Service. I don't know if you guys have seen that. It's awesome. I recommend no, it to everybody. Haven't. So it quotes all of these senior military officers, retired Navy commander Mark Russell, saying we are betraying the mental health of mm-hmm. our of our veterans. We don't have to do this. We have protocol we can pursue and we're not doing it. They quote uh, former Brigadier General Lori Sutton, a psychiatrist, saying we were ordered to keep our mouths shut about the PTSD crisis. Uh, former defense secretary, Robert Gay, saying this is crazy. He said, he, he said it's, liter- it's literally madness yeah. the way we're treating our veterans. So what's missing, in my opinion, is first of all, education. And it's, it's not esoteric education. Your brain has been changed. Go on to uh, do a Google search. How does PTSD change the brain? There it is. Your brain has been changed. You got a different brain now and so you need to mm-hmm. live with that mm-hmm. brain and what you need to do i i think of it as you've got to rebuild the brain now the wonderful news is that the brain is infinitely rebuildable until we die the brain is neuroplastic it can be rewired so you need to do the things that rewire the brain and it's a it's an as you just said it's not a one two three thing it's an infinite range of things that you can do meditation is a fabulous repair tool absolutely 
fabulous. You need to find mm-hmm. a kind of meditation that works for you because meditation isn't one size fits all either. But even, right. I mean, do the stuff that makes your heart sing. If it's if it's riding a bike, if it's walking on the mm-hmm. beach, it's like do that. That's a as your friend said, get out in the sun at least two hours a, a week. It's really important to do that. You will remodel your brain by by doing that. Which is actually what you did. Mm-hmm. Our last show is is what you did. You got into the outdoors, Brian. Go ahead. Yeah, no, I, I, I think that's such a, a wonderful follow up to what we were talking about on our last episode about getting outside. And, and you know, after hearing that you spent that much time, um, you know, out in, in Idaho, um, you said that you were you were out there writing and, you know, being outside in in nature, kind of in, in witnessing those beautiful events happening um, that really falls in nicely with what what we were talking about in our last episode and as far as the the meditation in which you were speaking of um could you could you maybe share with us like some of the the techniques that you use or do you prescribe to a certain um i've you know i've uh, done transcendental meditation which was you can get trained in that some guys uh, report some Mm -hmm. folks report a life-changing experience. It changed their life, changed their, saved their lives. Mm-hmm. Wasn't that effective for me? There are two books that I would recommend people check out. One is called okay, okay. "Breaking the Habit of Being Yourself" by by Dr. Joe Dispenza. Awesome, okay. absolutely awesome book. Awesome meditation protocol that he uses. Everybody can do it. And it becomes addictive. It, you know, it's, it starts to feel, it feels so good. Okay. It starts to feel like eating a candy bar. The other is Dr. Um, okay. Daniel Siegel's book called Awareness. And he has a meditation technique okay. uh, that he calls the, the circle of awareness. Very easy to understand. Very easy to do. You do those meditations. And I like to do them first thing in the morning. You get up from the meditation changed. Mm-hmm. The other thing that we that we talked about, and we're really? doing it right now, and you guys are doing it, is find people you can talk to about your military service. The very best people are our brethren, right. our brother and sister veterans, be, be, because we have yep. this common experience that we that that we can understand. That gives you a PTSD isolates you and, and the isolation is Mm -hmm. deadly. It's not just being alone, being alone can be very healing. It can be very wholesome, but being unconnected, feeling that you don't fit in, that's what is so deadly. And so I, you know, we talked about this earlier, but, um, I, I think what needs to be prescribed, what I would prescribe for all veterans is that job one for you is to heal yourself. You, you, you must mend your PTSD. You must do it. And you must take the steps yourself to do it that work for you. Because if you don't, your PTSD changed brain is going to run your life and it will not give you the life that you want 
and and then share that as as you do stuff that works for you and stuff will work just be in action stuff will work share it with others find battle buddies mm-hmm. that you know like you two that oh <laughs> I, i'm gonna i'm gonna cut in on that one mr larry because that's actually that's that's it's funny that you say that because our first show that we did not publish was <laughs> was uh and we 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 recorded several shows that that were not published uh in kind of a trial and error thing and mm, our first mm. one was battle buddies and and the relationship that that Brian and I Brian and I have through uh the beginning of our uh, well the beginning of our meeting in in our uh team yep was uh was very was very interesting and from time in in the military to, and to de- deployments and arguments and fights and screaming sessions and Brian was actually a few uh, uh, a few ranks ahead of me so there was a there was some some yelling matches you know there was a yeah. there was some some very interesting things that happened in our relationship mm-hmm. in the military but 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 post military was mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. the brotherhood was the the hey fuck this shit mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. we need to stick together and yeah. and a lot of and I'm just going to go ahead and go on this real quick but a lot of people talk about oh the brotherhood and the this and the that and and stick with your friends and and the military blah 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 but there's not a lot of people that I have come into contact with through my service that continually press forward to keep that that relationship going and through that relationship comes that security through the stress through the the struggles and the hard times and having that person to contact when your brain's going crazy because if you don't trust anyone in the civilian sector exactly yeah who do you go to who's the next person that you can trust is your military buddy and if you don't call them you don't talk right. to them now you've got no one and that's the in in a nutshell that's kind of Brian and I's relationship um pre during and post military and kind of how we got this podcast going uh, and it and I just wanted to share that with you and um to agree with with what you're saying and in, in like you said 52 years later it's the truth what you're saying is the fucking truth so, and it means something um, to us my best army buddy who again I roomed with in the guns he and I were like brothers in Vietnam and we've been brothers ever since and he's the one who saved my bacon when I had my bad PTSD crash I really don't know if I would be here were it, were it not for him the thing about finding quote a battle buddy is i want to be real i want to be real about this it's i mean i'm 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 just really blessed that i've got this i've got this buddy this quality of friendship i i'm i have a friendship with a lot of the guys that i served with but it's not 
the it's it's not the real thing that it is with you the the brotherhood absolutely that's there i and i don't think what i don't think civilians can understand that that is not a it's not just a phrase it is a visceral relationship it's a right. it's a visceral reality to, but it can be challenging to you know to 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 find the kind of friendship Absolutely. that satisfies that criteria, and it's very easy uh, to experience toxic relationships with you know folks that are struggling with PTSD. Mm-hmm. My um, you know my, right. my my buddy Hugh, who I th- I shared with you guys when he had his PTSD crash, it was twenty years after Vietnam, and he was suicidal. He was one of those guys that had the thirty eight in his mouth, and you know yada yada. He was very fortunate to get some to get an excellent in-house PTSD program through the VA. And then he did nine months of twice a week intense psychotherapy with a with a therapist who was just perfect for him. It was a perfect match. Hugh then became a veteran service officer and a certified peer specialist. He is probably I'm sure he saved dozens of lives in what he's done. But he tells me that what he does with the guys that he helps is he has a real uh, come to Jesus conversation with him and says, this is a bear. This thing is a bear. Don't you doubt it. Mm-hmm. It will kill you. And you've got to work it. If all you want to do is cry in your beer, it's understandable. Of course you want to cry in your beer. Damn stuff hurts. But that won't save you. It won't heal you. And one of the stories... Hugh, Hugh likes to tell is that, no. you know, so a real thorn in the side of Vietnam veterans is Jane Fonda, right? Because J, 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 Jane Fonda went to, mm-hmm. you know, God, yeah. God I, I, do, I do not have an issue with that. Although I think it was an appallingly insensitive, and she does too now. She, I mean, she's apologized. She knows that was a dumb thing to do. But anyway, there, there's a certain uh, ilk of, a v- Vietnam veteran that'll start belly aching about Jane Fonda, you know <laughs> Hanoi Jane. <laughs> We've got urinals. We've got urinal cakes yeah, in my say. in my local. <laughs> and and VA he had this brilliant group. line. So he'd listen to some guy just go off on Jane, and then he'd look at him and he'd say, "How often do you think she thinks about you?" Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's powerful. Yeah. Well, Mr. Larry, we're gonna uh we're coming up on our on our time frame right now and as much as we would love to continue this for for ten hours uh, <laughs> and and drink whiskey into the night, you know. <laughs> uh, we're gonna be a little calculated right here and, and we're gonna shut it down uh from from that point uh before i i start the closing brian do you have anything no i just i just want to offer my sincere thanks to you larry for coming on the show and um and definitely leave the open uh, the open invitation sure. To, sure. to picking up where we left and off i want to commend you both for what you're doing and encourage you um to just lean on it as hard as you can because it's a, it's a great mission you've created for yourselves thank you sir and on that note, I'm going to read the Medal of Honor citation for Mr. Jack Loomis. 
the President of the United States of America, in the name of Congress, takes pride in presenting the Medal of Honor posthumously to Lieutenant Jack Loomis, United States Marine Corps Reserve, for conspicuous gallantry and intrepidity at the risk of his life above and beyond the call of duty. A leader of a rifle platoon, Company E, attached to 2nd Battalion, 27th Marines, 5th Marine Division, in action against enemy Japanese forces on Iwo Jima in the Volcano Islands on 8 March, 1945. Resuming his assault tactics with bold decision after fighting without respite for two days and nights. First Lieutenant Loomis slowly advanced his platoon against an enemy deeply entrenched in a network of mutually supporting positions. Suddenly halted by a terrific concentration of hostile fire, he unhesitatingly moved forward of his front lines in an effort to neutralize the Japanese position. Although knocked to the ground when an enemy grenade exploded close by, he immediately recovered himself and again, moving forward despite the intensified barrage, quickly located, attacked, and destroyed the occupied emplacement. Instantly taken under fire by the garrison of supporting pillbox and further assailed by the slashing fury of hostile rifle fire, he fell under the impact of a second enemy grenade, but courageously disregarding painful shoulder wounds, staunchly continued his heroic one-man assault and charged a pillbox, annihilating all the occupants. Subsequently returning to his platoon position, he fearlessly traversed his lines under fire, encouraging his men to advance and directing the fire of supporting tanks against other stubbornly holding Japanese emplacements. Held up again by a devastating barrage, he again moved into the open, rushed a third heavily fortified installation, and killed the defending troops. Determined to crush all resistance, he led his men indomitably, personally attacking foxholes and spider traps with his carbine and systematically reducing the fanatic opposition until stepping on a landmine. He sustained fatal wounds. By his outstanding valor, skilled tactics, and tenacious perseverance in the face of overwhelming odds, First Lieutenant Loomis had inspired his stout-hearted Marines to continue the relentless drive northward, thereby contributing materially to the success of his regimental mission. His dauntless leadership and unwavering devotion to duty throughout sustain and enhance the highest tradition of the U.S. Naval Service. He gallantly gave his life in the service of his country. This is the Seabag Podcast, signing out.